0: This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. We're taking our second look at the book of Amos. And Amos was an Old Testament prophet. And his book is found near the very end of the Old Testament. We saw last week, if you were here, that Amos was a farmer. And he came from the south, came up to the north It would be a little bit like uh, a farmer from Victoria coming up to speak to the churches in New South Wales. And uh, Amos was a layman. And the message of Amos in a nutshell is that God is extremely committed to his people, probably more committed than his people realize. During the week I caught up with one of my neighbors in my street and I went to visit him at his work and he works as an animator for some of the very large budget movies, one, two hundred million dollar movies. And he showed me around his company and I saw all the people sitting there with their large screens perfecting a tiny sequence of a movie. He explained to me that often it will be a whole day's work of the team to see two seconds of the movie progress. The day's work will be for two seconds of a movie. And I realized that if you give this man your project, your animation project, he's not going to let it get worse. He's going to make sure that it is as close to perfect as you can possibly want. That's really his commitment to the project. And I suppose if you invite a good builder into your house, you must expect that he will do a little demolition before he does some restoration If you ask somebody to take over a football team and they're serious, they'll be serious with the team. If you ask somebody to conduct the orchestra or be the director for a play of actors, you expect them to really take things on seriously. Ask a doctor to fix your back, he'll be serious. Ask a plumber to improve your home, he'll be serious. Ask a pastor to come and join a church. It's unlikely that these people will say, well, let's just let everything drift. Who cares if things get better? How much more is it the case when God takes over a project of people that he's going to let us just decay, decline and drift? He's not going to. And if I might put this more bluntly, if God decides to become the father of a family, he's not going to let us turn into a lot of brats. And that's the message really of Amos. The shock of Amos and the good news of Amos is that God is more committed to his people and their progress and their growth than we are. And that's why Amos, this little book at the end of the Old Testament, is telling the people of Israel what God is going to do for that progress and now why he's going to do it. Last week we saw Amos announced that God's patience had run out with the nations around, but he'd also run out of patience with Israel. And you remember too that Amos was not a loony, he wasn't just standing up in Israel and spouting crazy ideas and having nobody listen to him the fact is that he'd been given the words of God to speak. And just as Jonah was able to walk into Nineveh and cause the Ninevites to to repent as a nation, God obviously backed the words of Amos and gave them very great power. And so as Amos called out in the middle of Israel to the nations around and said, woe to the nations, and then zeroed in on the church of Israel, It's a little bit like somebody standing up very effectively on the town hall steps of Sydney and calling out in a loud voice, woe to Iran, and everybody thinks great. Woe to North Korea, well that's fine. Woe to Afghanistan, woe to China, and then suddenly woe to New Zealand. Woe to Australia, woe to Sydney, woe to the churches. Woe to St. Thomas. So you start by listening and thinking, well, the atrocities out there are terrible. Then you discover that this prophet speaking for God is talking about the hypocrisies in here, in the same breath. And we may, of course, think the atrocities are terrible and what we're doing is fine, and God is looking at the two and seeing that there is great sin in both. Now, God speaks this way, not because he's a loose cannon, but because he watches the world, he registers what's taking place, he feels, he decides that he will settle things, and he also watches the church, and he is dissatisfied with carelessness in the church. Where there is lifeless orthodoxy, he will change it, and he will, if necessary, sift the church he'll refine it, he'll purge it, he'll weed it. And he'll do this because he's committed to having a real people who walk with him and rejoice in him and delight in him and grow like him. And that's the point, again, of Amos chapter 3 and 4, which we come to this morning. We're going to think about chapter 3 under the heading, What Will God Do? And the second heading, chapter 4, why will God do it? So what will God do? Amos chapter 3. I wonder if you'd look at it with me, especially verses 1 and 2. The Lord says, basically he says in verses 1 and 2, listen Israel, listen family. There's a loaded word family in verse 1, isn't it? Because he would think of the family of his people as being Israel and Judah, even though they're separated, he sees them as one family. And he says, I chose you, verse 2, I chose you of all the families of the earth, and I brought you out of Egypt, verse 1, I saved you, and therefore I will, he says, verse 2, literally, I will visit you. Our translation says, I will punish you, which is, of course, the purpose of his visit. But he basically says to the Israelites, you're my family, I chose you, I saved you, and therefore I'm going to visit you. And I'm going to visit you because you need to be visited. I need to turn up. This is the only time in the Old Testament that God actually calls Israel his family and as I say, it's a loaded phrase. And um, he loves the people enough to visit them because they are going off track. And uh, his commitment means that even if it's going to be a difficult visit, he's not going to avoid it, he's going to make the visit, and unfortunately it's going to be a costly visit. Chapter 3 verse 11 says, an enemy will overrun the land. I'm going to visit you in the form of an enemy. I'm going to cause an enemy to visit you. I'm going to bring Assyria as the one who will visit you. And then he begins a series of riddles in chapter three, verses three to six. And the riddle was a favorite way to get attention. I don't know if many of you remember some years ago, the British footballer Eric Cantona Uh, left the field and somebody abused him as he was leaving the field and he went crazy and kicked out of the spectator and had to front up the media and as he sat facing the cameras and the microphones he uttered the famous and memorable words, when seagulls follow the trawler it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea, thank you very much. And this became the stuff of t-shirts and legend, because nobody had a clue what he was talking about. And uh, I actually asked my nephew, who was staying with me, to look this up for me so that I could get the quote right. And uh, he he paced the house intrigued by this quote, trying to work out what it is all about. And I'm not sure that anybody ever really knew what it was all about. But here is Amos with seven riddles in chapter 3, verses 3 to 6, designed to get the attention of the people of Israel. And the seven riddles are basically riddles of logic. They're not all that complicated. The riddle is asking the question Do you think B is happening without A causing it? So look at verse 3 to 6. Do you think two people are walking together? without a decision behind it. Do you think a lion roars for nothing? Does a bird get trapped if there's no trap? Do trumpet sound for no reason? Does disaster hit a city and God is not behind it? And then says Amos, verse 7, God has revealed his plans. He has roared, verse 8, there is a reason why I'm here. I think this is very clever because Amos is saying to the people of Israel, Do you realize why I've come up from the south? Do you think I've come for no reason? Do you think I've just turned up for a whim? No, no, no. God has spoken, and I'm the messenger. There is logic. Well, not only is there logic in the riddles, but there's also something sinister because each of these riddles is speaking about a lion or a trap or a trumpet or a disaster. So they're not just fun riddles. There's something unsettling about them, except the first, verse three. And this one I think is full of pathos and full of emotion where the Lord says, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? And behind this is the reminder that God amazingly agreed to walk with these people. And he did walk with them. And they agreed to walk with him. And God said to them, walk before me and be blameless. Walk in the way that I command you. Didn't we agree to walk together, says the Lord? And we could ask this question this morning, couldn't we? There are many here who at some stage in the past decided that they would walk with the Lord. But in a strange way, for some strange reason, are not walking with the Lord. And the Lord knows. And though he's asked us to walk with him and agreed to walk with us and we promised at some stage that we would walk in the light and have fellowship with him and his people... We've stopped. And so the Lord says, I'm going to get you back on track because you're not walking with me anymore. I know outwardly you're doing religious things occasionally, but you're not inwardly walking with me. And because he's a shepherd, he's going to bring them back on track. No wonder he gets a shepherd called Amos to be his spokesman. Amos, I guess, understands this. And Israel is so far off track, they're so resistant to God that we read back in chapter 2 that they didn't like the word of God and they didn't want to read or listen to the word of God or do the word of God. And so the Lord says in this remarkable section that follows from verse 9 that he's going to call on two witnesses who will come and watch his behavior and they will testify to his decision to bring in an enemy to sift his people. And of course, two witnesses would always establish the truth of something and make sure that nobody could doubt that what was taking place was taking place. And as I say, the truth that God wanted witnessed was that he was going to bring Assyria in to sift his people. But look at the two witnesses that he chooses. Unbelievable. He chooses one called Ashdod, that's a Philistine city. Think Goliath, think brutal enemy and he's going to have Egypt come in as another witness. That's the prison that they left long time before. Think captivity, think Pharaoh, think godlessness. And these are the two cities that God says, I want you two to come and watch this sifting of my people. And the result is, verse 10, 11, 12, that there's going to be a remnant of God's people A small leftover reduced few, verse 12, just like a bit of a sheep, a portion of an animal is left over. The other thing that God is going to do is he's going to remove the security blankets, verse 14. I'm going to destroy the altars of Bethel. I'm going to destroy those places which you have made, they're man-made religious altars, where you go for your spiritual refuge but they're not a refuge. So whatever religion you've been hiding behind, I'm going to remove it, says the Lord. And verse 15, the mansions that make you feel so safe and powerful and at ease, I'm going to remove those as well. So the religious refuge and the non-religious refuge are going to be taken away. And it was taken away. What Amos said in 760, 750, all took place in 722 when the Assyrians came in and they removed the places of refuge. And what God said he would do, he did. Now he didn't do this to be cruel. He did this because he's committed to his people and they're not listening to the prophets. And so he's going to speak to them the hard way by bringing in the Assyrians and his people will eventually be be purified and respond to him in a way that they never have. Now, I don't know whether this ever happens to you, but uh, does it ever happen to you that just God changes your circumstances, and so you come back to a position of desperation? You ever noticed in your own Christian life that you're traveling along, and things are quite casual, and you're busy, and you're still doing the religious essentials. So you say grace at meals, turn up to church. If you've got kids, you're still reading the stories to them. But your heart is actually somewhere else, and it's gripped by something else. And nothing is really getting through. It's not as though you're suddenly returning to God and saying, look, things are bad. I want to be serious. It's just a drift, and it's a decline. And what God does in the middle of that is to bring a change of circumstances. I've experienced this. I'm sure you have as well, if you've been a Christian for a while. Suddenly, he intervenes in such a way that you experience a new sense of desperation and helplessness. And you find yourself looking at the sin that was attractive and thinking that's stupid. And you find yourself looking at the priorities that you had and thinking they're inadequate. And then you find yourself looking at the God who you knew and and know and walked with and now don't walk with. And you say to yourself, I've got to get back. And you go back and find that he welcomes and restores and renews. And you're back to your senses. That's what Amos is talking about but he's doing it on a national scale, or we might say on a church scale, or perhaps even on a personal scale. That's what God will do. Now, the second chapter that we're looking at this morning, chapter four, is why God will do it. And uh, we didn't read the first three verses because I wasn't quite brave enough, and I couldn't think of anybody brave enough. Perhaps Peter would have been the right person. But uh, if you ever doubt that Amos was a brave man, or if you want proof that he did not fear man or woman, just look at the first few verses of chapter 4, where he takes aim at the wealthy women. The men, incidentally, will get their message in chapter 5. But these wealthy women are careless towards each other. They're superior even in the home. They're ordering everybody to wait on them, and Amos calls them cows, cows of Bashan, which I presume is a little bit like saying the cows of the Hunter Valley. It's a sort of a a famously lush area. Uh, One commentator tries to make out that this is actually a flattering term since cows were peaceful and contented animals. (laughs) I think that's a long shot myself. I once uh, sent an email to a lady in this church with the initials of CW and my spell check said, try cow. (laughs) And I thought, this is not going to help the email. I think the point that Amos is making is that the women in this particular situation are well off and they are absorbed in themselves. They graze peacefully for themselves they don't have a care in the world, they're disinterested in anybody but themselves, and they have no time for God. And Amos says very courageously, because it's much easier to take on men today than women, isn't it? He changes the metaphor in verse 2, and he says, God is going to yank you away like fish hooks will carry you far away and you will go out of the city and your peaceful apathy is going to become a very painful wake up for you. And you see then he goes on in verse 4 to mock the religion of the Israelites. He says in verse 4, go to Bethel and sin." go on, go to Bethel and sin. Bethel was a spiritual Mecca for the Israelites. It was a place where God had appeared to Jacob. And then says the Lord, go to Gilgal, another spiritual Mecca and sin. Gilgal was the place where they'd crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. And you see that what Amos is saying on behalf of God is a send up. He's saying to these people, uh, why don't you go to your church and sing your hymns? and keep sinning. And then why don't you go to Katoomba, and go to a conference, and listen to your heroes, and keep sinning. And then why don't you go to Moore College, and SMBC, and learn your verses, and learn your doctrines, and keep sinning. And brag about your success, and who you know, and what you know, and boast about your progress, because it's all a fake. It's just a game that you're playing. Because, says the Lord, the outward stuff doesn't fool me. I watch the heart. I think this is such a sobering thing, that we deal with a God who's so loving, it's heart to heart. But it's serious. It's like being married to the most serious bridegroom in the world. He's out for our progress. He will not settle for mediocrity or decline. And it is a sobering thing, isn't it? Imagine if somehow a light was able to be brought down from the roof and it lit up the people in the pews and the pulpit whose heart this morning was inclined seriously to God. And I just wonder how many people that light would settle on. Would shock us, wouldn't it? to suddenly realize that in the pulpit or in the pew, we've been seen as people who are here and singing and saying and preaching and listening, and there's no light because God knows that our heart is actually somewhere else. That's the God that we deal with. He knows us. He doesn't play our games and he can see uh, see through us just as we can see through very very bad acting and what he simply looks for is a broken heart a contrite heart a humble heart a genuine heart that's who he loves and lives with well in israel of course has no inward reality and therefore god is coming and it's not as though he's not being trying to bring them back, because in verses 6 to 11 he's been using a whole series of wake-up calls to get them to return to him. And I think these verses in chapter 4, 6 to 11 would make a remarkable passage uh, to preach on at a public event in Sydney. But it's also very important for the church, uh, where Amos lists about seven what we would call natural events which God caused to make the people respond to him and return to him. So this is not just the pagans in our street. This is the people in the pews. You would think that they would wake up and listen and return. And we read in verse 6 that he sent a famine. Oh, that should have reminded the believers, shouldn't it? Verse 7, he held back the rain. He caused it to fall in one place but not in another. He struck down their business, verse 9. Verse 9 he sent plagues. Verse 10, they should have been saying to themselves at that point, why would we be getting plagues? Don't plagues go to Egypt? And then verse 11, he scorched their towns. And again, they might have said to themselves, I thought this is what's happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, and now it's happening to us. And all of this was to cause the people, his people, his family, to return to him. But the, there was no response again and again and again in these verses, but there was no returning. There was no repenting. There was no response. And now since Israel is not coming back to God, God is coming to Israel and he's coming to visit them and he's coming to visit them seriously. And verse 12 is maybe the most famous verse in the book of Amos, which says, prepare to meet your God. And this is the verse which you will be familiar with on the back of sandwich boards of crazy people in the streets who normally are preaching this text, prepare to meet your God, as if the end of the world is just around the corner. Or we don't know if the end of the world is around the corner, but the arrival of God to sift is any time, any time. Well, all of these events which the Lord caused, the famine, the drought, all of these things are the opposite of natural causes. They are all divine causes. Amos does not believe in good luck or bad luck or coincidence, He doesn't believe that nature is a person who goes around doing things. Every event which is listed here and everything that takes place is traceable to God because God, you see, doesn't sit in a grandstand and just watch matter move about. God causes and ordains matter to move about. And there are some times where he delights in the way things go, and there are some times he doesn't delight, but he just decrees it. And that's the challenge for the Christian is to be watching all the things that are taking place in the world, some of which God delights in, some of which he just decrees, but he stands behind all of them without compromising a character of love and faithfulness and gentleness and goodness. And we hold these things together, as Amos does. Of course, the newspapers in Egypt and the newspapers in Assyria and the newspapers in Israel may have put it all down to natural causes, but that's because they operate in a little human framework. They don't understand the biblical scriptural framework. So these Amos chapters are painting a wonderful God, who won't settle for spiritual deadness in his people. I'm so thankful for this. When the great Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, he leads in paths of righteousness. And then at the end, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That little word follow has got built into it, the idea of snapping at the heels. The Lord, the shepherd, causes out of his goodness and mercy, certain things to bring us back to him. That's why things don't always go well. That's why sometimes things do go well and we respond with gratitude and wholeheartedness. And that's why sometimes things don't go well and we are being pushed back into a proper response. And God tells us through Amos what he will do to the Israelites and why he will do it. What will he do? He will sift them. Why will he do it? Because they are marked by pretense. This is not so much idolatry. This is dead orthodoxy. And he's so committed to his people that he will not save us for nothing. He'll save us for close fellowship, which honors him and gives us joy. Nobody, of course, was more critical of pretense than Jesus. Nobody had more trouble with pretenders than Jesus. Nobody spoke more strongly than Jesus to the Pharisees, and he saw their behavior as tragic because um, they were working the ritual and missing the rebirth and the joy. And then occasionally somebody would come who would just be a very ordinary person And yet they had realized what it meant to be wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. And that would, of course, give him great joy. And the God of Israel, the God of Amos, is our God. And if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he's going to love you and bless you and work on you and shape you and inwardly renew you and perfect you all the way until you see him. That's who we're dealing with. If you want a God who will just leave you alone, don't pick the God of the Bible. But if you pick the God of the Bible, you've picked somebody who's going to really work on you and work in you. And we know how serious he is because he sent his son to pay the maximum price And he sent his spirit to make us new. And the question we need to ask ourselves, again, as we look at this second section of Amos this morning, the question that we need to ask is in the light of this, do we realize how committed he is to us? And maybe before he takes some steps to remove some unhelpful props in our life, or maybe before he sends some serious alarm bells to get us to wake up and return to him, we should be removing the pretense ourselves and returning with some fresh reality and some fresh humility and walking with him again, which is why he invited us and saved us and it's what he's working on. Well, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for bringing us into fellowship with you through the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are good and committed shepherd. We pray that you would have mercy on us for being such wayward and neglectful sheep. We thank you for sending your word through Amos and the word through all the scriptures, calling us to walk with you in humility and penitence and faith and faith. We pray that you would help us to do this and please incline our hearts to you, open our minds to your word, unite our wills with you and please cause us to be satisfied supremely with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.